0: We're journeying through the book of Romans, and we're in Romans chapter 11, uh, verses 1 through 10 in the passage that we read earlier today, and uh, before we get into the text, uh, th- this passage talks about a remnant, a remnant within Israel, and as part of God's eternal plan, and I thought that today would be a good opportunity for us to talk about the plan of God, and uh, to talk about a few things uh, like predestination, election, foreknowledge of God, and topics like that. And when you talk about these deep issues, there's a wide range of views within uh, Christianity. And and so today I want to stake out my territory and explain to you what I believe, as clearly as possible, God's Word teaches about predestination. Now, before you tune me out and think, well, this topic just isn't for me today, Before you tune me out, just understand that what we're really talking about is the plan of God, the plan of God, and it ought to be comforting to us, it ought to be encouraging to us that God has a plan, and his plan includes you, his plan includes me, and so let's just sort of jump into this, and uh, let's try to tackle what does the Bible mean when it talks about predestination, and first I'm going to show you what most people mean, what most Christians mean when they talk about predestination, and as you might be able to guess already, I disagree with what the standard view is. But I'm going to show you the standard view of predestination. And uh, so behind me on the screen you see a a, a very rudimentary timeline. And uh, so there you've got a, a point in time when God created the world, and then you have human history extending over until the end of human history. You can't get more basic than that, okay? And then you might notice that there's a little space before God created the world. And this is uh, before the foundation of the world. When God made some decisions and God uh, did some things, you might say, before the foundation of the world. And so this is the basic timeline, and you, as you can probably uh, understand that. And and so before uh, God created anything, He chose or He predestinated every person who would be saved. Now remember, this is the standard view. According to the standard view, God predestinated every single person who would be saved. Now this means logically that God also had to predestinate every single event that would happen in human history. Now there are some uh, very strong Calvinists who would argue this. And they say, no, 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 that's misrepresenting our view because uh, God doesn't have to predestinate, plan out in advance, and foreordain in every single event that happens in hu- human history. According to our view, he only has to predestinate the people that get saved. Well, let me show you why that's just not logically consistent. And uh, my half-brother, Charles, from my mom's first marriage, is a believer. And so is my half-sister from that same marriage, and so am I, from a different marriage the marriage of my mom and my dad. And so if you believe in the standard view of predestination, where, uh, where predestination and foreknowledge are two sides of the same coin, they're essentially the same thing, then for God to predestinate all three of us for salvation, it logically means that God had to predestinate all of these events, and I'll list them. Number one, that my mom would go to Louisville High School for she would meet her first husband. God had to predestinate that and that she would marry them, marry him, and that she would divorce him. God had to predestinate that as well. And that she would marry my dad, and that they would have me. If any, of one, any one of those things did not happen, then either my half-siblings or myself would not have been born, and you cannot be born again unless you were born. It just can't happen. That's what born again means. It means a second time. And so logically, if you believe in the standard view of predestination for God's foreknowledge and God's predestination are essentially the same thing, then God logically has to predestinate all events. And so as human history progresses, we go down this timeline, every single event, according to the standard view, every single event, in human history, occurs exactly as God had predestined it to before the foundation of the world. This includes acts of evil. And so if you believe in the standard view, again, for God's foreknowledge and His predestination are essentially the same thing, then God predestined the fall of mankind as well as every other wicked act. He would have to in order to save exactly those people that he had chosen before the foundation of the world, according to the standard view. And so you get to the end of human history, according to the standard view. And once we get to the end, and if you were able to look back, you would see that every single event in history happened exactly the way that God predestined it to. There are no surprises. God mapped out a plan in minute detail, and he carried out his plan. Now, that's the standard view of predestination. And if you choose to believe this view, there are some ramifications. Number one, every event, good and evil, great and small, is predestined. Every single event is predestined. And we ought to be on the next slide now. Every event is predestined. Secondly, actual human freedom does not exist. According to the standard view, actual human freedom cannot exist And I want you to think about it, because if every last detail was planned out by God and in history, before history even began, then whatever you do, whether good or evil, it has been foreordained to occur. There is no human freedom. There's an old joke where the Calvinist stubs his toe, and he says, well, thank God that's over, because he knew that it had to have happened. And so now, now sometimes... Hyper-Calvinists will—they'll try to squeeze human freedom into this framework, and they'll say things like, "Oh no, no, no! You know, humans are free. It's just that human will always agrees with God's will," and/or they'll make uh, complex parsings of very simple concepts. They'll say they'll contrast things like, "Well, you see, you have God's perfect will and God's permissive will." And these don't always, uh, some things might occur that God permits, but it's not his perfect will. But that makes no sense at all if God has planned out every single detail in advance. Because if God predestinated every single detail in advance, then everything that happens is God's will. And if it happens, if something happens, by definition, it is the will of God if you hold to the standard view. And so another ramification of the standard view is this, that the fall had to be predestinated. We mentioned that. And finally, that God, therefore, predestinates all evil. Now, this last concept, and even the third one, is just pretty much flatly uh, unbiblical. The the idea that God would predestinate all evil, and that, that sort of makes God the author of evil, and Scripture flatly says that he's not. And so, again, Calvinists try to soften this idea. They say say things like, well, evil is part of God's plan, but he doesn't ordain it. But if you believe in the standard view of predestination, statements like that are just incoherent. They're nonsense because the standard view where God's uh, foreknowledge and God's predestination are essentially one and the same, that standard view absolutely concludes that God foreordains evil. You can't say that God planned evil to occur but didn't ordain it if every single event that happens is preordained. You just can't do that. And so at this point, if you're trying to parse words like that, you're just playing linguistic gymnastics and you're not being consistent with yourself. And so that's the standard view and you might guess that I don't believe that. Um, Here's my view. And I need to give credit to Dr. Michael Heiser, who had some excellent work in this subject matter. Here's my view of predestination. When we talk about God predestinating things in Scripture, and I think when Scripture talks about God predestinating things, we, first of all, make a distinction between God's foreknowledge and His predestination. Okay? Now, what do we mean by that? Well, By foreknowledge in a very general sense. God's foreknowledge simply means that God foreknows every event before it could ever occur, even events that don't occur, even possible events that don't occur. For example, and we've used this example before, if I had a a die, you know, like a pair of dice, and one of them is called a die, if I had a die, a six-sided die, uh, and I threw that die on the ground, you would know that it's going to be one of six options. If it's a six-sided die, the numbers one, two, three, four, five, or 6 are going to come up. If I flipped a coin, you would know it's heads or tails. There's really not a third option unless you're hoping it somehow lands against a wall and doesn't fall flat. Okay, so uh, it's heads or tails. You know with the die, options that will not occur. Five options that will not occur because you know all six options that could. And so that's what we're talking about when we talk in a general sense about God foreknowing things, God's foreknowledge. Now, there's also a specific sense in God's foreknowledge where Scripture talks about God personally knowing believers before the foundation of the world. But in a general sense, the foreknowledge of God simply means that God knows every event that could possibly occur. But when Scripture talks about predestination, it refers to the ends that God is seeking to accomplish. It it refers to what it is that God hopes and will make occur. And so in eternity past, according to my view, God decided what it is that he wanted to accomplish at the end. He also decided in eternity past To make humans free. He made us in His image. And part of what it means to be made in the image of God is this, that we are free because God is a free being. And so each one of us are free beings. We are free today. You are free today to bless God. You are also free today to curse God, although I would not recommend it. Because you're also free to suffer consequences. And there are consequences when you choose to do those things that do not please the Lord. And so, according to my view, after creation, as human history progresses, not every event is predestinated. Not every event is determined in eternity past. By God, some events probably are. In fact, we're going to come across one, this idea of a remnant that is. is, But not every event is predestinated. And so what God does as human history progresses is that God occasionally, and more often probably than we realize, God intervenes in human history to influence the behavior of us humans, of us God imagers, And he never takes away our freedom, but he does use certain influences to influence us. He uses other humans to influence us. He uses his spirit, the Holy Spirit to influence us. He even uses other spiritual beings like angels to influence our behavior. And so you get to the end of human history, according to my view. And at the end, we'll discover that God accomplished everything that he planned. His predestination was not about ordaining every single event, but about fulfilling his plans. And here are some ramifications of my view of predestination. Number one, evil is not predestinated. Evil arises out of human freedom, or we might even say non-human freedom. Spiritual, you know, the the devil and the demonic forces as well. But evil arises out of the freedom of, of these free beings. Secondly, actual human freedom exists. It exists. You're absolutely free, as we mentioned a minute ago. Third, the fall of Adam and Eve, the fall of mankind, is not predestinated by God. It was foreknown by God. And I believe that God knew that it was almost an inevitability that it would occur, that if he made humans free, that humans would eventually decide to disobey him but it was not preordained by God and finally the salvation of individuals may or may not be predestinated God has the freedom to choose people according to my view to receive his salvation and to make that occur and there might be some room for more Armenian, Types of ideas in this overall plan. Who would say, you know, it's really it's really about man's reaction or response to the, to God's call. But either view, whether you're a little bit more Calvinistic when it comes to uh, God choosing people to be saved, or a little bit more Arminian, and uh, it's really up to man to respond to God. Either view, there's some room here, according to my understanding. But what we're really talking about is the difference in predestination between my view and the standard view. And so, the question is this. Is God himself, as a free being, is he free to decide in eternity past that certain people receive his mercy? Absolutely. God is free to do that. And is God free to predestinate a remnant within Israel? To be saved, absolutely he is. And so we finally get to Romans chapter 11. And here's a yes or no question for you. Does God keep all of his promises? And I hope that you would say yes. But really, all of them? Have you ever gotten sort of down and depressed and you wondered where God is? God, have you abandoned me? God, have you left me? Have you ever drifted away from God, and you wonder where God is? And it's the old trite saying that if you and God aren't close anymore, one of you moved, and it's not him. And you wonder where God is, and and if you get if you get down emotionally, and if you get down physically, you know, physical pain and physical hardships can can cause you to be down spiritually. It can make you depressed emotionally and spiritually. And you start thinking things that aren't true. and You start thinking, is, is God keeping His promise to me? And so you start to have doubts. Even though God's Word says very clearly that God always keeps His promises, and, and logically it has to be so, that God keeps His promises. But there's a lot of people that begin to doubt, even Christians, that begin to doubt whether God keeps His promises. Well, God does keep his promises always. Every last one of them. It's just that when things don't go the way you want, you might start to believe the lie that he doesn't. And so the Apostle Paul, once he got to Romans chapter 11, he anticipated that non-Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians like, like us, most of us probably, we might come to the wrong conclusion about God when we see that Israel, his chosen people, have rejected their own Messiah. We might ask that question that we read about in verse 1. Paul says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? And he answers the question right away, and he says, may it never be. He says, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. You know, if God had rejected the entire nation of Israel, if God had turned his back on every single Jew, then Paul himself would have experienced that. Then Paul himself would have been rejected too. But the Apostle Paul, being a Jew, he has proved that there is a believing remnant within Israel that God has not rejected. Look at verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And here we have one of these passages where Paul is using the, the foreknowledge of God in a very personal sense. For God has chosen people to be saved. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel. What's Paul talking about? You remember that story in the Old Testament about Elijah? It's a great story. How Elijah was victorious over the 450 prophets of Baal. And Baal is the false idol, the false god that, that these Baal worshipers worshipped. And so God, and Elijah is really God, God defeated these false prophets. And when that happened, Queen Jezebel lost her mind. She flipped out. And she said, Elijah, I'm going I'm to kill that Elijah. And so she threatened to kill Elijah. And Elijah did what any strong man of God would do. He ran away. And, I mean, he ran. He kept on running. He didn't stop running for quite a while. And so he fled for his life. And Elijah hid in a cave in a mountain, Mount Oreb. And he, in that cave, he complained to God against God's people Israel. It's this idea. God, you called me to preach to these people, and now they've all turned their back on you. I'm going to complain against them. Elijah felt that way. And he felt like he was all alone. Look at Elijah's prayer in verse 3. He said, Lord, they, your people, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. You see, Elijah had thought that all of Israel rejected God and rejected God's ways. But Elijah didn't have the full picture. You know, when you get scared, when you start to have a pity party, like Elijah was probably having, you don't see things correctly. And when you don't have all the information, you certainly don't see things correctly. And Elijah didn't have all the information. Elijah had been sulking in a cave 40 days and night's journey away from danger, and it took a direct reply from God himself for him to learn that he wasn't the only one who remained faithful. Verse 4, this is what God said. It says, but what is the divine response to him? God said, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Elijah wasn't the last prophet in the land. God had reserved a significant remnant of faithful. Believing Israel. And they refused to worship the false god Baal. Paul's point is, that's the way it always is. God always preserves a remnant who refused to turn away from him, who refused to turn away from the Lord. You know, even today, in a completely different situation, we, being the church, are God's people. There are many churches, there are many pastors, there are many Christians that have decided to follow after this false god and that false god and slowly and surely they come across passages in God's word that they don't like and so they just ignore them. They might as well remove them because they're certainly not going to believe them, certainly not going to teach them. And heaven forbid they abide by them. They have become unfaithful. But God is looking for his remnant. Even today. Who say, God, I I believe in your word. I believe in you. And I will follow you. There's always a remnant. The question is whether we're going to be part of that remnant. Verse 5, Paul continues. He says, in the same way then... There's also come to be, at the present time, a remnant according to God's gracious choice. Paul's talking about believing Israel. He's talking about those Jews who had received the Lord Jesus as their Messiah. Messianic Jews are the remnant of Israel within ethnic Israel. They're the faithful remnant within the larger body. And they didn't become the remnant by obtaining God's righteousness through good works. They didn't become the remnant by obtaining God's favor by obeying the Ten Commandments. They became the remnant because they responded in faith. They responded by believing to God's call on their lives. And so I want you to understand that the remnant in God's plan is not just some random group of people who by happenstance believe in God the remnant of Israel is Israel. And that is the remnant that God made all of those promises to all the way back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. The remnant is the chosen people. They are the remnant scripture says in this verse according to God's gracious choice. God is free to choose, and God has chosen a remnant. Verse 6. But if this choice, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. I want you to think about it. If God preserved a remnant within Israel based on their behavior, then His grace wouldn't have anything to do with it. It would simply be their behavior. Grace would no longer be grace. Grace, by definition, means that there is nothing humans can do to achieve a certain standing, a right standing with God. Every Jewish person, every Jewish person who takes his heritage seriously, every single one of them want to obtain God's righteousness. The problem is some try to obtain it by good works. Some tried to obtain it by obeying the Ten Commandments and the other various laws in the first five books of the Bible. Verse 7, Paul writes, What then, what Israel is seeking, it has not obtained, but those who were chosen, they obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Only those that were chosen by God... Only the remnant actually obtained God's righteousness, and they obtained it by believing in the Lord. The rest of ethnic Israel, unbelieving Israel, they were hardened. You know, when you reject God's ways, your heart becomes a little bit more hard spiritually. You become a little bit more insensitive to God's word. When you say no to God, your heart becomes deaf to the promptings of His Holy Spirit. It is so dangerous to come to church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday when the Holy Spirit speaks to you to respond to Him. And Sunday after Sunday, you say no, no, no. And the Holy Spirit, who once was loud in your spiritual ears, you can hardly hear anymore. He's still speaking. But you've grown deaf if you continue to say no. It's dangerous to continue to say no to God. Because it hardens your heart. Unbelieving Israel rejected God's word, rejected the prophets, and finally God sent his own son. And unbelieving Israel rejected his son. As a result, their hearts were hardened towards God. Verses 8 through 10, we read, just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, Eyes to see not, and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not, and bend their backs forever. Listen, if you disregard God long enough There will come a time when you reach a state of stupor toward him. You'll reach a state of a settled disposition to reject God. And for unbelieving Israel, this has become a reality. Paul said to the present day, and I would echo that even to this day. I'll give you an example of how this hardening of hearts manifests itself. In the 1930s and the 1940s, Adolf Hitler and his followers organized a system of mass murder that they used against Jews and many other people. This system of mass murder, their actions, they were not an act of God. They were an act of a deranged and evil man. Yet many Jews who survived the Holocaust became atheists. They blamed God for allowing all of that suffering. At the same time, there were other survivors of the Holocaust who saw God at work in the midst of their suffering. Survivors such as Cory ten Boom. Same suffering. Some hearts were drawn closer to God. Some hearts became hard. The hardening of a spiritual heart toward God can become a terminal disorder. And religious forms, religious rituals, they only serve to make your heart harder. They become, as King David said in verse 9, uh, snares and traps. When I mean, you he talked about a table. He's talking about a part of the Jewish worship. Here. And so they become like snares and traps because they give you a false assurance. When you When you reject God and yet continue in religious form, When you reject God, and week by week you keep coming to church, but in your heart you've said no to God. When you reject God and you play the game, and nobody knows but you and God, that you've actually in your heart said no to Him, then your heart actually becomes hard, and you receive a false assurance that your faith is real. You come to believe that you've said yes to Him, when actually you've said no. You've blinded yourself. You've reached that spirit of stupor and false assurance. When you reject God, your eyes become more and more dim. In 2 Corinthians chapter four, verse four, Paul writes, "The God of this world, that's Satan, the God is lilji the God of this world, has blinded." the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, the God of this world. And you see it so clearly. You see it so clearly in our society today. So many people, blinded to the very truth of Christ, blinded to the truth of God, Blinded to the very idea that God is good, that God loves them. They're blinded to that. And they hate God. They hate everything about God. They hate God's people. They're blinded to the fact that God loved them so much, He became one of them and died on a cross for them. They're blinded to that. You know, right now, God may be speaking to you. The Spirit of God may be speaking to you in a very still, small voice. And he says, come to me. Let us reason together. Come. The danger of turning away and saying no to God is that you don't know if you'll be able to hear his voice tomorrow. You know, if in your mind you're saying, well, not today. Not this Sunday. Maybe next Sunday. Maybe later. Maybe when I'm old. Maybe when I'm on my deathbed. I'll get right with God. But not now. I'm having too much fun. I don't want to change my ways. I don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want to be some type of religious nut. So God, not today. Not now. Tomorrow's not guaranteed. Jesus told the story of a man who was very wealthy. Become so wealthy, he didn't have barns big enough to hold all of his harvest. He said, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to tear down my barns and I'm going to build bigger barns. And God said to him, you fool. Don't you know this night your soul is required of you? The man had never made peace with God, but he thought he had all the time in the world. He didn't. Neither do you. We only have the time that God has given us. Scripture says today is the day of salvation. One of the tragedies of Adam and Eve choosing to say no to God and choosing to rebel against him By eating of the knowledge, eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One of the tragedies is that all of us have inherited death. We've all inherited death. Even infants die, even children die. Old people, we've all inherited death. We don't know when it's coming, but it's coming. You need to be ready. Today is the day of salvation. Is God speaking to you today? Can you even hear him? If you can, respond and say yes. Saying yes to God is the best decision you'll ever, ever make. got a whole room full of people who would agree with that. And every single person here who would agree with that. You've gone through hard times. You've gone through suffering. You've gone through difficulties. It doesn't mean your life will never be challenging. But it means God's with you the whole way. And the Spirit of God will bring you home when your time on earth is over. Respond to God today.